Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. This morning I'll be doing something a little bit different as an Easter sermon. Uh, the text that we've chosen isn't normally a, a Resurrection Sunday text, but I'm following um, up on Palm Sunday and Good Friday um, the question, who is this? And I got the inspiration to do this from a commentary by Samuel Storms. I recommend that commentary on Colossians if you're interested, or his website, Enjoying God Ministries. Um, but it gave me the idea after what we preached last week and what we heard on Good Friday. And so I have you turning to Colossians 1, but I am going to read Matthew 16, 13 to 5, and Matthew 21, 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And now Matthew 21.10, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Father, we ask now that you, by your word and spirit, would answer that question for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on Palm Sunday, if you were here, I asked that question, who is this, from Matthew 21, obviously speaking of Jesus. And then on Good Friday, Pastor Stu asked a question from Matthew 16 that Jesus himself asked, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And then he follows that up with, well, who do you say I am to the disciples? Who is this man? Who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And we gave an answer on Palm Sunday from that text, and we gave an answer Good Friday, and we're going to answer that question once again uh, this morning, who is Jesus? It's an important question. There are many people who give many different answers to that question. Uh, Some think he's a good man. It's nice. They think he's a great teacher. Generally speaking, some refer to him as a healer or a prophet or an angel. Some have. Some have even claimed that he was demon-possessed by the devil. Uh, uh, Mostly every religion has an answer to that question. The Mormons, they they believe he was the firstborn child of Elohim. He was the product of the physical union between the Father God and the Virgin Mary. Uh, Many scholars tell us that Muslims believe Jesus is just like Abraham and Moses and Isaiah. He was a prophet of God, but he wasn't God himself. In fact, he wasn't even the most important of the prophets. That distinction belongs to Muhammad, who lived 500 years after Jesus. The Jehovah Witnesses, they, they teach that prior to his coming to earth, Jesus was Michael the archangel. He's only a creature, the first product of Jehovah God's creative work. When he was born, he was divested of all his spiritual and angelic nature and became a man, exclusively a man. He wasn't God. So that's what they teach when they come knocking at your door. The Hindus teach Jesus was just one of a thousand of gurus who guide and hold your hand through this journey called life and There are other religions we could mention. All of them have a view of Jesus. All of them answer the question, who is Jesus? Um, And and this really says something, that all these faiths 
find it important enough or necessary to answer who is Jesus. I mean, we're not doing the opposite for them. Um, I usually don't sit around just saying, I really want to know who Muhammad is or feel to give you an answer to that question. But they do because of the impact. And so the question is, who is Jesus? Which Jesus you're going to follow? And I think what we need to do, and I believe you understand that, is look to Scripture. What does the Scripture say about Jesus? And we did that on Palm Sunday. We did that on Good Friday. We're going to do it this Sunday. In fact, we do it almost every Sunday when we turn to the Scripture. But we need to form a correct opinion of Jesus. And so we need to go to the source material, the Word. See, it's not sufficient to just say what so many people do say, well, Jesus means this to me. I've mentioned this before. That's the bumper sticker, Jesus, right? Jesus is my co-pilot. There's a sticker, Jesus is my buddy. There's even one that says, Jesus is my valentine. That's kind of weird. I wouldn't get my theology from bumper stickers, And so where do we turn? Well, we turn to the Scriptures. Uh, And and all of Scripture, Jesus tells us this, all of Scripture speaks of him. If you believed Moses, he says, you would believe me, for Moses wrote about me, John 5, 46. Now, we don't have time to begin in Genesis and walk through the whole Bible. And so I picked this passage again. Thanks to Dr. Storm's suggestion, but I picked Colossians 1, 15 to 20, where your Bible should be turned, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, here we go. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now that's a pretty big bumper sticker. And so you couldn't say all that. But if I were to try, and I get to the heart of what Paul is saying here in the book of Colossians, is that Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is supreme and he's sufficient. That's that's the focus of the book, the theme of the book of Colossians, the absolute supremacy of Christ and the sole sufficiency of Christ. See, Paul is writing uh, in light of false teachers who have now entered the church, and they've come in with their teachings, and he's confronting them for uh, their misrepresentations, their false uh, representation of Christ. And what he does is he positively sets forth the exalted nature and the unmatched glory of Jesus. Now, these verses are actually one of the first early Christian hymns, scholars tell us. 
as Paul was meditating upon the person and the work of Jesus, as he was considering these false understandings of Jesus, and he was trying to wrap his head around Jesus' person and work in the life of the church and in the experience of himself and in the experience of the believer, he, he, he was incapable of expressing it in cold, a calculating way. And so he becomes lyrical. He, he, he breaks out in song, as it were. You see, when we reflect upon the person and the work of Jesus, it, it must never be merely academic. Oh, you can learn some things, but it must never be merely academic. It, it should bring you to praise whenever you consider who he is. It should drive you to your knees in prayer and humble adoration. See, the study of doctrine, one writer said, must compel you to doxology, that you would give him praise. And that's what Paul does here in this poetic style. He lays out for us who Jesus is. And he does it through Christ's relationships. He begins with his relationship to God. And then he goes on to his relationship to creation. And then he goes on to his relationship to spiritual beings. And then he'll talk about his relationship to the church. And finally, his relationship to you and me, to the Christian. Now, verses 15 to 17 will cover God, creation, and spiritual beings. And then 18 and 20 will cover the church and the Christian. And we're going to quickly take a look at all of them and then end by applying them. First, his relationship to God. In verse 15, we read he is the image of the invisible God. Now, that seems strange. How do we have an image of something invisible? But see, in the Greek mind, the image has a share in the reality that it reveals and may said to be that reality. It was not considered distinct from the object. Thus, the image of God, Christ, what Paul is saying is that Christ is visibly an exact representation of God. He illuminates God's essence, who he is. God is a spirit. We can't see him. He doesn't have a body like we do, but Christ is the image of the invisible God. He has represented God. He has manifested God what God is like, and even though invisible. He is God in the flesh. Jesus himself says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You want to know what God the Father is like? You must look to the Son. You look to Jesus. He is the perfect reflection of the Father. In fact, Paul would go on the same, verse 19, look there. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, Paul has two purposes, the scholars tell us, in using the word fullness. Uh, the, the false teachers used to love talking about fullness. Um, and you could have fullness. You would find fullness if you follow their rituals, they would say. And if you, if you follow their practices, you can have fullness. And Paul retorts, he responds, he fires back by saying, no. Christ is the fullness. That's where the fullness is found. You don't look somewhere else. You only look to Jesus for the fullness. And so he uses that word there to, to combat the false teacher, teachers. But, but the second reason is because it refers to his deity. 
In Colossians 2, verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus is a a full, not a partial embodiment of God. That's the idea. That's what Paul's trying to say. God was pleased to dwell fully and permanently only in Christ. And so in the Old Testament, where did God dwell? He dwelled in the tabernacle. He dwelled in the temple. He dwelled in the Ark of the Covenant. And now Jesus supplants the tabernacle and the temple and the Ark of the Covenant. He represents God in his person. And so who was this man? Well, he is God. He is God incarnate. Second, let's look at his relationship to creation. Verse 15. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now, when you think of firstborn, we usually think of the firstborn son or child or daughter or granddaughter, like mine. And it raises the question, is is what Paul's saying, like the Jehovah Witnesses, I said earlier, they, they say that Christ is the highest of all creatures, but he was created. He was born. The answer, though, is obviously no. The next verse, we read that he created all things. Jesus is not included in the created order. He he is the creator. We're not thinking here in physical terms. See, the word firstborn is a title of status. Um, It it has to do with the rights and privileges of the firstborn son. And and Paul is saying the same thing that the author of Hebrews said, that Jesus is the heir of all things. So what Paul's doing by saying firstborn is saying he's the heir is saying that Christ is supreme over, has supremacy over creation. And in verses 16 and 17, Paul tells us that Christ, uh, that Christ is the creation and they brought creation into being, all of it, not, not just earthly realities, but heavenly realities. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, that's an amazing statement. It's an amazing statement. It, it, the earth and everything in it was created by him, and for him. He is the beginning of creation. He is the source of creation. He is the end of creation. You know, it always marvels me when people say, I don't know why you believe Jesus is God. Well, if Paul only believed that Jesus was man, this is a terrible way of representing him and what he says here in Colossians. I mean, you cannot but walk away and say that he created everything. He's the source of that creation. He's the purpose of that creation. He is the glue that holds everything together. Apart from Christ, the universe would simply unravel. See, God didn't start things off and then kind of walk away from his creation. Christ, today, even now, sustains the whole universe. One writer said, he keeps the cosmos from becoming chaos. Think about it. Even when scientists in our day, atheists, scientists, philosophers, all these people that deny God, they they are, and they're making up their reasons for the creation of the universe and, and the existence of the world, they're actually completely dependent upon Christ in order to deny Christ. With just a word, they'd be gone. 
and so would the universe. He holds it all together. He created it all. There is nothing in this universe that is outside of Christ's control. R.C. Sproul used to say there's no stray molecule that's gone rogue. Everything is in his control. And this includes spiritual beings as well, which is our third point, his relationship to spiritual beings. Again, verse 16. All things were created, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And now this refers to fallen angels. Um, uh, that he created them, and so he has power over them, these demonic powers. They're, just like there's no rogue molecule, there's no rogue demon in the universe outside of Christ's control. Uh, Luther liked to say, the devil is God's devil. He is Christ's devil. We don't have this belief in like good and evil, and they're equal, and they're fighting against each other. We already know who won. There is Christ, and then there's everything else. It's not Christ and the devil. It's not Christ and anything. It's not Christ in creation. It's Christ and everything else, including evil. Now, the Bible's clear that demonic forces seek to usurp his authority, that they seek to destroy us. But the outcome's already been decided. I made a joke earlier. Let me summarize Pastor Mick's message. Jesus wins when he talks about end times. Now, obviously, there are way more details. But Jesus wins. He is victorious. As I said, in just one word, Christ could confine Satan and all his demons to hell, just like that, that quick, and, and, and which Revelation teaches and, and he, he will someday do it. So who is Christ? Who is this person that we're gathered here? Well, he is God incarnate. He is the supreme creator. And he is the omnipotent Lord over all principalities and demonic powers. Fourth, the church. His relationship to the church. Verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so he's not only supreme over creation, he's supreme over the church. He is the head of the body in the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now notice what Paul stresses here. He has the authority in the church. He's the head of the church. He's the only head of the church. He's the only Lord of the church. There's no Jesus, and he's important, but he's gone, so we have a pope. And, And I would say it this way, too. There's not Jesus. He's got authority in the church, but then there's the elders, or there's the pastors, I do not rule the church. The elders ultimately do not rule the church. We are simply under shepherds who must do his bidding. We have no right to make up rules that Christ himself has not given. I may have a belief about something, a conviction that I have that that I can't prove from Scripture, but I feel strongly about it. I cannot enforce that on you because I happen to be the senior pastor. I may say to you, hey, I wouldn't get involved in that. Or, hey, you can feel free to get involved in that either way. But I have no right to say, thou thus saith the Lord. I have no right. Christ can do that. 
Why? Because he's the exact representation of God. He is the creator. He is the Lord of all spiritual realities. And he is the head of the church. And now fifth, his relationship to you and me, the Christian. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus is, who is he? Who is he? He is the reconciler of men to God. He's the peacemaker between God and man. The crucified and resurrected Lord. And not only does Paul stress the supremacy of Christ in creation, the supremacy of Christ in the church, he's, he's, he's emphasizing the supremacy of Christ when it comes to your salvation. Both Christ's person and his work is sufficient. He is the one, Christ alone, who reconciles all creation through his death. And by the blood of the cross, the world may be corrupt, disordered. The world is ravaged by sin. The world is busy denying him. But God, in his love, sustains it so that those whom he has called will come to Christ. One writer says it this way, the death of an obscure Jew in a seemingly God-forsaken hill in a backwater province of the Roman Empire attracted no notice from the historians of the time. But it was the vent that reconciles heaven and earth. That's how profound and important it is. And this is particularly true of mankind. By saying that Christ is the reconciler, something's being assumed that we needed some reconciling. That's, what needed, that's what's being assumed. And that is the case. By nature, Scripture is clear. We are God's enemies. And apart from Christ, we would receive his wrath. It's always interesting that no one unbeliever who puts a bumper sticker on their car says, I love the God of wrath. He's going to punish me for my sins. They don't believe that part. But Scripture says it. And then it says this, though, the good news, that God sent his son into the world to save all those he has chosen. Paul says, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than that, having now justified us by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. From when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice that in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. What's Paul saying? You were separated from God. More than that, you you were dead to God. More than that, you were his enemy. You deserved his wrath. You deserve his judgment. You would deserve eternity in hell. But Christ reconciled us. He appeased that wrath. And so Jesus is God. Jesus is the creator of the universe. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the head of the church. He is the peacemaker. And he is the reconciler. And so why does it matter who Jesus is? How do we apply this to our life? Well, I want to say for believers, and not many of you, I'm sure, are questioning any that I've just said, it matters because it's essential that your knowledge of who Jesus is 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 much more than simply a Christmas or an Easter message. We have people listening. 
maybe visiting, I don't know, who, who only come at Easter. And you get some understanding of Jesus when you do that. You get some understanding. But after hearing who this Jesus really is, we, we, we need to not think that we can just worship one part of him. We have to know more about him. And, and so the main application here for everybody is that the more you know about Jesus the more you can enjoy him, and the more you enjoy him, the greater he is glorified when we gather to worship him. Get to know Jesus. Calvin said the perfection of a happy life consists in the knowledge of God. That's what we went through today, the knowledge of God. Who is Jesus? And so the main application, by the way, Often hear this, people will talk about applications in sermon, which we should have, and you're going to hear a few in a second. But we think that the applications about what, all right, what do I do now? It's not, not a bad thinking, but what do I do? Well, here, here's the main application it should be of every sermon is, I leave here today knowing my Savior, loving my Savior, desiring to follow my Savior all the more because of what I just heard from the Word of God. That's the first application, glorying in Jesus, knowing what he's accomplished. But there are things that we are to do. Uh, it matters because we want to worship him, but there's more that can be said. At first, and this is where I got help from Dr. Uh, the, the man, I forget his name, the guy that I said in the beginning, Samuel. Samuel. Storms, thank you. Whew. First, if Christ is the image of God, here's an application. And if the fullness of God dwells in him, then we can be sure we will not find fullness in anything else. And you say, well, what do you mean? See, people are searching everywhere to be fulfilled. And all we need is to find Christ and to get to know him better. And, and, and then that is the fullness of God is found in him. That's where fullness is found. Second, if, we, if, if he is before all things, as we just learned, and in him all things hold together, and then we don't have to fear that the world's going to unravel apart from his sovereign choice. Global warming's no match for Jesus. It doesn't mean we don't pay attention to creation and, and show respect to creation. But God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, says the psalmist. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at their swelling. We will not fear. And in regards to fear, if, as we just read, all the things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, he created. Thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities were created by him. Then do we have to fear Satan? Well, Scripture's clear that Satan seeks to devour us like a lion. So where's the answer? He's been conquered by Jesus. He is sovereign over Satan. Satan is more like a little kitten than a lion when we turn to Christ. He's defeated him, the Scriptures make clear. Look to Christ, and, and you fear Satan no more. We talk about casting out demons. Not, not, not going to debate that right now, but if I knew somebody was demon-possessed, what would I do? 
I would point them to Jesus. If you feel like you're being influenced by the demons and Satan, maybe you are. Look to Jesus. He's conquered Satan for us. And, and, and it's also true as people. Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are more value than sparrows. The Lord's our helper. The point here is that because of who Jesus is, what we know about him, we don't have to fear. What can man do to me? They can do a lot, right? They could stand up, they could shoot me, they could kill me, but ultimately they can do nothing to me. Just reunite me to my Savior. And so we have no fear. Well, third, if God's plan from before creation was to reconcile all things through Christ, then we don't need to supplement anything for Christ. To any legalistic, this is what was happening in Colossians, all these different things that we want to do in order to draw ourselves closer to God, keep these ritualistic regulations or, or have these special visions to realize the, the import of this salvation. No, we just need to look to Jesus. No man-made religion. We don't need to add the Scripture in order to live for Christ is the point. All sufficiency is found in Him as it's revealed in His Word. He's supreme. He's sufficient. In fact, the supremacy of Christ over the whole cosmos assures us of his sufficiency. Everything is in his hand, as the song says. Fourth, now we must not allow our blessed resurrection hope that we have uh, be shaken when it's challenged, when we remember who Jesus is. You know, today it's likely that on the History Channel or somewhere, They're celebrating Easter by sharing how Jesus wasn't really who he said he was. And there are others mocking it. I think of somebody who I've come to appreciate lately with some of the things he says, but Bill Maher just just mocks Christians. And whoever, you fill in the blank, Um, whoever that is, um, they don't deny, I mean, they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't really believe in the Bible, and they think you're a fool for doing so. Um, but it doesn't matter. You know, let me, let me just say this to you. Somebody in your life, somebody you respect on television, uh, they deny Jesus, doesn't make him go away. You ever think about that? Oh, well, gee, you know, Bill Maher doesn't believe in Jesus. I guess 2,000 years of history must be wrong. Right? No. We believe that Jesus is sovereign. He reigns supreme. He's conquered the grave. And because of that, he's promised us resurrection. That's the issue, by the way, since we're on Easter Sunday. It doesn't matter what you like or don't like about Jesus' teaching. It doesn't matter what you believe and don't believe about Jesus' teaching. The question is this. Did he rise? If he didn't rise, go home. Or don't, because I still want to get paid if he didn't rise. you, you, You can't deny him Uh, of his resurrection and have any meaning in Christianity. If he did rise, then everyone here is accountable to him, and the only logical conclusion is to obey what his word says. And so my faith isn't shaken when I come across somebody who disbelieves. And so our Savior reigns supreme, having conquered the grave.
and because who Christ is, our hope in the resurrection is secure in him. And now fifth, although Christ is supreme over all, that supremacy is mostly manifested in the visible church. What do I mean? Christ is the head of the church. And and God's plan is for you is to include you in the church when you were saved. We're all held together by Christ. He is the head. We are the body. You can no more be saved and not be part of, quote, the church. This is why our confession says outside the church, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. It doesn't mean you have to join a church or there's no way you can be saved. It's saying that it means that you are saved and brought into the church immediately. Joining the local church is a way of displaying that or acknowledging that, um, that you are part of the church, the body of Christ. What's the point I'm making? If he's the head of the church, it's important to him. If that's where he's going to display his glory the most, it's important to him. And so the church isn't an optional part of your Christian life. It's the Lord's church. It's the Lord's day that we gather today. But I'm not just talking about a building and a worship service. We are his sheep. He is our shepherd. And to separate from the church is, in a very real sense, to just separate from where he desires to nourish us and and feed us and, and, and teach us and help us to grow in understanding. That's why the author of Hebrews, this was happening in Bible times. Let us consider how to stir one another up in love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together. And then he goes on to say, some have a habit of doing that. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Christ is the head of the church, so we are obligated to be connected to it. Well, finally, if it is through his blood that he makes peace, then peace can only be found in a crucified and resurrected Christ. If Christ, as I said, did not die on the cross or raise from the dead, then we don't have peace with God. You may want to, but you don't. We are not reconciled to the Father if he's not, he didn't die for us and raise again. We are not forgiven. We are not redeemed. There is no Christianity without the cross and the resurrection. See, what you believe about Jesus matters. It, it matters. It matters immensely. Our salvation depends upon it. There is no salvation for you. And I'm, I'm speaking to you, maybe if you're here visiting because it's Easter and you're not a believer or you're listening um, to what I'm saying. There is no redemption for you. There is no forgiveness. There is no peace with God. There is only judgment and wrath unless you receive Christ for who he is. Lord and Savior, crucified and resurrected Savior. Your opinion of what Jesus is like, my opinion for that matter of what Jesus is like, means absolutely nothing in the scheme of things. What matters is what his word says. And what does his word say? He is the very image of the invisible God. He's the heir of God. He's the Lord of creation. He's the fullness of God. He's the supreme ruler. He's the head of the church. He's the beginning of resurrection life. He's the firstborn among the dead. He's the sustainer who upholds the very fabric of the universe. He's the ruler over all spiritual beings. He's the reconciler. He's the peacemaker. He is preeminent. He is supreme. He is sufficient. And he is the crucified and risen Savior. 
That is who we believe in. That is who we gather to worship. That is who we exalt and lift up. That is who we pray to. That is who saves us and loves us with an everlasting love. And that is who will someday return and resurrect ourselves so that we can be with him forever. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the revelation of our Savior and risen Lord. Bless us now with that understanding that our lives would be enriched by it. In Christ's name, amen.